You have no ambition, I well know. Your wishes are all moderate. As moderate as those of the rest of the world, I believe. I wish as well as everybody else to be perfectly happy. But, like everybody else, it must be in my own way. Well, they'd both be happy when finally Mr. Darcy arrives, right? Uh, that's not the book with Mr. Darcy. He's in the other one. Which other one? Oh, God. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, dear perverts. Not accusing anyone of anything, but ever since we discussed 18th century porn in our last episode, our listenership has literally doubled. So thank you for that. And also, you're kind of weird. Our listenership has climaxed, you might say. Yeah, it has risen steeply. Uh, the number is engorged. You might. Okay, wait, no, no, no. no, no. no. We wanted wait. to get away from exactly. all of that. Exactly, exactly. Where were we? Oh, yes. My name is Jonas. And I'm Christian. Hello. And this week we read Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Sense and Sensibility is the story of the Dashwood family, or more specifically, two of the Dashwood daughters, Marianne and Eleanor. They live at the back end of the 18th century, and they're in a rather precarious situation because their father has just died, and their half-brother from the father's first marriage isn't too happy about them living in his father's house. So Eleanor, Marianne, their younger sister Margaret, and their mother are forced to move to a different part of England where they're living with distant relatives. The two sisters, Eleanor and Marianne, do have very different personalities and it's no wonder that the novel is titled Sense and Sensibility. Eleanor is the sensible one, always taking care of things, always keeping her emotions in check, but also having a certain tendency to let others have the fun and let her own desires be suppressed. Marianne, on the other hand, is all about emotion. She cannot handle the whirlwind of passion, of romance, of feeling things, and that gets her in sticky situations sometimes. Both of the sisters have to basically try and find a husband, not only due to emotional reasons, but yeah, the sensible thing is to get a husband to actually be able to survive. Marianne falls in love with a young gentleman called Willoughby, who at first at least appears to be all dashing, handsome and mysterious and very fascinating. Also very... wait, <laughs> sensible? No. Sensual? No. Passionate? No. Sexy. <laughs> who seems to share her tastes, her opinions, etc. Much more so than Colonel Brandon, who is ten years older than Willoughby, who she considers horribly boring. Whereas Eleanor is still quite attached to her half-brother's brother-in-law. Edward. <laughs> so you can tell the names are a bit confusing, and it's a lot of names... Everyone is kind of related to each other because then they run into some women who they realize, oh, wait, we're related to them, actually. Let's invite them into our house. And it turns out that one of them, what's her name again? Lucy. Yes. And one of them, Lucy, is already engaged to Edward. So that's a major bummer, of course. And it then also turns out that Willoughby is not actually as chivalrous as he seemed. No, actually... He got the adoptive daughter of the colonel 
pregnant and then left her. So everything seems to go horribly, horribly wrong. And will the sisters find happiness? Yes, they will. Of course. It's going to be a happy ending. Lots of marriages and so on. But that is not the interesting part about the plot of the novel. The interesting part is how they get there and how the different attitudes of the sisters are proven to be not entirely correct, but also not entirely wrong. Sense and Sensibility was actually the first novel that Austen published in 1811. It was followed by Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Persuasion, all these great books that are read to this day. And it's interesting, really, how present they are in pop culture. Also, there are several films of the Jane Austen novels, which are very popular. And basically, this is the conclusion of what we started with Twilight, because Bella is obsessed with Jane Austen as well. That is true. It is interesting that Jane Austen herself never really experienced that popularity. Sense and Sensibility, for example, was published under a pseudonym. Though we, of course, know that Jane Austen is actually just the adopted female pseudonym of a Yorkshire man with a huge beard like a rhododendron bush. And a booming voice. She never made that much money with her novels, and two of them were only published posthumously. So the popularity of her novels nowadays is something of a phenomenon. Jane Austen is often misrepresented as a kind of chick-lit writer of the early 19th century. And that is not true. I think what strikes one when first reading, especially Sense and Sensibility, is how unpretentious Austen is as a writer. Her style is very much to the point, especially considering that at that time, the neoclassical style was still very much into a very elaborate and decorative style. Very sarcastic narrator figures commenting on their characters from a point somewhere far removed from what was actually going on, your Thackeray's and Henry Fielding's and so on. Though I found it interesting how unmuted her narration really is. I have to confess, even though I have been studying English literature for quite some time now already, I had never read an Austen novel until this day, Um, as you found out in an embarrassing game of Never Have I Ever some years ago. And I was a bit, yeah, proud and prejudiced, if you that will pardon doesn't that. doesn't work, no, uh, no, oh, okay. no, no. Um, I was a bit prejudiced against her, partly because of her reputation as chiclet, which, uh, as much as I might struggle against it, is probably something that still informed my attitude towards her. And I also had heard, oh yeah, you know, it's all about romance and guys in white shirts falling into ponds and... Yeah, no, it's not really, you know. It's it's really, really funny, for example. I mean, Mark Twain infamously said whenever he reads Jane Austen, he wants to dig her up and hit across the head with her shin bone, uh, which is a nice Twain witticism. But Mark Twain was also kind of an asshole. And also, he didn't think very highly of Shakespeare, so... Shut up, Mark. Shut up, Mark. Basically, Austen, I found surprisingly really, really funny and witty. Uh, for example, one of the first things that literally made me laugh out loud. As a house, Barton Cottage, though small, was comfortable and compact. But as a cottage, it was defective. For the building was regular, the roof was tiled, the window shutters were not painted green, nor were the walls covered with honeysuckles. She plays on the pretensions and the foolishness of... Her contemporaries, which in the Regency era was considerable. And she is a really good observer of this foolishness, 
of the kinds of silly things people do and say. And she portrays that in a very gentle way. She doesn't laugh at the people. First, she just said, oh, come on, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? That's, that's what I mean. She is not that highly sarcastic narrator figure that ridicules those puny mortals uh, in her narrative, so to say. And at the same time, what I meant by muted is that she also, she doesn't take well to bullshit. Not only in what she describes in people's behavior, but also in her way of writing. She calls things as they are. And that sometimes may seem a bit simplistic. So very early on, get a very good picture of both Eleanor and Marianne. That they represent very different aspects of personality. And each time that is kind of repeated, you might say. <sighs> we get it. Let's, let's move on, shall we? But the characters themselves are, I think, really, really interesting. And it doesn't take a lot of description. Or it doesn't take a lot of context to see what they are, what they represent, and how they play off each other. But the way you described it right now, it sounds like it's a rather small scope. Like it's this intimate portrayal of these two girls. But because they stand for sense and sensibility... It is about so much more. It's about the time that this was written in, really. It was the time of the late Enlightenment, and we had just seen what the Enlightenment had wrought in the French Revolution and in the Terror. But also, it was the time of this cult of sensibility, which would then result in the Romantics, really. I mean, I've, I've slagged off the Romantics previously on this podcast, mm -hmm. and... I have a kind of love-hate relationship with them. I love them for the beautiful things that they wrote, and I hate them for the stupid shit they said. So I think this is something that is very close to me, that I want to be an enlightened person, but I also admire the sensibility and the romantic view on life. And this is negotiated. And it's never said, oh, Eleanor is so much better than Marion, and Marion is just a stupid little girl. She is... Foolish sometimes as well, of course. But Eleanor is never cruel to her. Eleanor never s abandons her sister. She loves her dearly. And Eleanor is maybe just as foolish in the way she treats her way to happiness and her relationship to Edward and to romance in general. So yeah, these two characters are portrayed with their negative aspects as well. And this is where I think I actually do believe that this is also an intimate portrayal. You're certainly right. It's it, it both. And that is yeah. that is one of the things... Because our mission statement is kind of to talk about what is great literature and are these things great. And definitely one aspect of great literature, I think, is for me that it is neither very small in scope nor only great in scope, but it is both. It is personal and universal at the same time. Before we kind of get into judgments already, let's talk about the different scopes that you can find or can read into Sense and Sensibility. Because we mentioned already, it is also obviously kind of a love story. How do you find love? Is it something that just strikes you, but that might lead you into disaster? Just as the love story between Marianne and Willoughby, which is all passion, all connecting while reading Shakespeare's sonnets. But that also leads to um, taking a, a walk in the rain and getting pneumonia. So not that uh, good of an idea, maybe. And 
Eleanor falling in love with Edward, but they both seem to be the most inhibited people you can imagine. And then it turns out Edward has been engaged for the past four years, but he's kept it a secret from everyone. Because he's a, an idiot, basically. In the in the film version, by the way, um, which is which I can highly recommend. It's a really, really good film with great actors. Um, he's played by Hugh Grant. So each time I think about Edward, I have to think of Hugh Grant's kind of typical mannerisms, the, the stuttering and... Uh, um, uh, yes, well, you see... Uh, uh. I mean, I haven't seen the film yet. I think that uh, Emma Thompson uh, will be perfect for Eleanor because Eleanor is such a great character that I felt... I often thought, oh, yes, Eleanor, you got that right. I'd like to underline what you just said. And Emma Thompson is just the most delightful actress. And so uh, I, I, I'm really looking forward to watching that now. So it's a love story. It is, as we mentioned, connected to the history of ideas in that time. This strange point where romanticism and classicism clash or overlap or whatever. And how that certainly plays a role. What I found interesting is the role that the country plays. That you have a clear contrast, for example, between the countryside where the family lives, the cottage where they basically have to subside more or less because they've been kicked out of their previous home. But that still is much preferable to London, where also part of the novel takes place. And London seems to be a place which is straight out of Vanity Fair. It's all balls and being introduced into society, but it's also a place for disappointment and heartbreak. And it's interesting that nothing very exciting seems to be happening in London. They always talk about going to see people in London, but it's not terribly enjoyable. Also, they never go to plays, for example. But when they're in the country, they read plays to each other all the time. That's, and they that's right, books yeah. books to each other. And it seems that in the little private sphere in the country, in your cottage, they have a much more enjoyable and rich life than in London, where they are expected to perform even more in certain ways by society. Also, I found it very interesting how much it is about class. It's generally said that all of Austen's fiction is soaked through with class and class consciousness. That's what the pride and the prejudice of Pride and Prejudice is all about. And it's really apparent in Sense and Sensibility as well. All the characters here are more or less middle class. There's a couple of them who are part of the nobility, but most of them aren't. But they are part of a landed gentry. They are comfortable. They live off incomes. It's often discussed, oh yes, maybe I should have a profession. Maybe I should actually work for my money. Oh wait, no, I can just live off the rent. And that Austin cliche of constantly discussing how much income you have, how much pounds one, a certain person makes per year, that is prevalent here as well. Whether it's good to marry this person based on how much money they have, whether this woman brings a good dowry to her marriage, etc. But it's interesting because people who have money and people who don't have money never talk about it. It's only people who have a bit of money who talk about it all the time. This is a very, very middle-class book. But it felt very close to my lived experience as well. Not that I have a big landed estate where I can live off my rents. But <laughs> Yeah, that would be nice. But this kind of squeeze that the middle classes feel nowadays is very present here as well. Where at the beginning, they have to move out of their nice big house and downsize to just live in a cottage. And they kind of worry, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to get on? 
that is certainly reminiscent of thinking about graduating and trying to find a job. And it's, it's, it's very different on one level, of course, but it had an emotional reality to me that I wouldn't have expected from an early 19th century widow and her three daughters. I think what's also connected to that is the description or the analysis of the social mores of the middle class. Again, here, Jane Austen's bullshit detector comes into play. That she basically says that many of these rules, what is considered to be appropriate what is considered to be part of a certain position, of a certain standing. It doesn't really have to do with anything that really is real life. One of the most fun characters, basically, is Mrs. Jennings, an older relative who is described in the very beginning as very crude and very crass and making jokes about basically sex, more or less. It's implied, at least, that she's talking about about lovers and it makes the poor Dashwood girls feel quite ashamed. And and she's not actually a relative of theirs. She's just a woman who lives in the same right. little town right. who just gets up into everyone's business. Right, she isn't even a relative. But she still is there all the time and talks to them all and, of the time. And that is a character that I recognize. That's a kind of person that I know from the little town in southern Germany where I grew up. And still, she is not seen as someone entirely negative. She is seen as someone who has quite a lot of heart and quite She's a lot of... She's just a bit naff. Exactly. And that is really interesting that these questions of etiquette are seen as something that you can basically just get rid of or should get rid of, but maybe can't. And it's not just the middle class, but it's also the codes of behavior that, again, both Eleanor and Marianne follow. Because Eleanor is all about keeping to this about keeping appearances, about putting your own emotions underneath a surface of respectability, and that is seen as something that's not good. And Marianne is all about kicking everything aside and living your dream and your passion. But that is also seen as something artificial, living a life according to the rules, in that case, of romanticism, of poetry and passion. And that's not good either. Basically, what the book argues for is moderation, which is a very unpopular opinion to have. I mean, there's a certain aspect that towards the end when she says, and the moral of the story is that Marion realized that she should not just be so wild with her feelings all the time. That There's a tinge of, oh, come on, Jane, we could have figured that out ourselves. And there is definitely the notion of that Marion is just settling with Colonel Brandon. That she, she says she, she may learn to love him and it's presented as somehow optimistic, but it's also clear that it will never be the same as it was with Willoughby. Yes, but is that such a bad thing? It's, it's a really interesting question, I think, because, as you said, settling. Settling is considered such a bad thing. And, <laughs> I, I mean, but, you know, sort of settling down and achieving stability is beautiful. And after that part where... Austin sort of spells out the moral for us. She then says that actually the greatest happiness is that these two sisters manage to live a content life close to each other and still be good friends and have husbands that are good friends. And you know what? That sounds really, really nice. That sounds like a good life with people that you like, people you care about, people you treat well, who treat you well. And I don't 
think that that's depressing. I think that's actually a rather beautiful vision of life. But it's not the great romantic gesture. And it's odd that Austen is considered so fairy tale like with this Prince Charming. No, 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 definitely. There is a. That, that's not what she is. There is a cynical aspect to Jane Austen's novels that she quite clearly sees certain things as they are and quite clearly says, yes, dreams, great passions probably won't work out. So what is so bad about settling what is so bad about living a quiet life she has a cynical aspect but she manages in the end not, not cynical I would, I would say it's realistic I would say it's you know because kidding yourself into that life holds great adventures for you it's going to disappoint you be realistic about what life is and you will be much much happier at least that's what I got from this I would still say there are certain more cynical aspects because the Dashwood sisters might find their little piece of happiness, but the world or the society in general will continue to place great value on certain things that, that Austen sees as unnecessary or as artificial. Austen certainly has a very conservative streak as well. She is no revolutionary. Still, there are aspects of her writing that also may be beyond or ahead of her time. Obviously, we have to talk about the role of females in her fiction. She was a female writer. And especially in Sense and Sensibility, you have the feeling that this is a book about women. Women play the major roles in the novel. It's Eleanor and Marianne particularly, but even the family constellation with the mother and the younger sister. This is a very female-centered family picture where men are kind of circling around, rather often seen as kind of alien intruders, you might call them. All your dowry are belong to us. But they, they, they destabilize uh, this female-centered family. Not just in a negative way, as Willoughby, also in a more positive way, maybe. But you have the feeling that the ideal version of living together is exactly this kind of homosocial family structure, which reminds me very much of... Um, Rossetti's I, I, I was going to say, are we back to uh, Goblin Market with its lesbian psychedelic adventures? <laughs> That's really interesting. I hadn't even thought about that before. And of course, with Austin, it's not ex as extreme. But you get a sense that this is also about the love of two sisters. Again, two sisters with very different views on things and, and romance. And you know what? Actually, also there's the sensible sister in Goblin Market who doesn't exactly. want to go with the goblins. Exactly. And there's the... And then it's also described that they have husbands and they still live with each other. And it's, it's amazing how similar this is. We really only just realized that. So, um, wow. Um, maybe, maybe Goblin Market is just an alternate universe fanfic on Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> Who knows? But I, I think that that is really interesting. And it's even more interesting than Pride and Prejudice, for example, where um, this, there are also sisters even five of them but the relationship between them is not as important as the relationship between lizzie and mr darcy whereas in this case the relationship between eleanor and marianne is really at the center of the entire novel on a grander scale relating to certain ideas relating to a portrayal of society relating to a portrayal of social mores but also yeah this portrayal of femininity and of living together as women in that time. And I was really concerned when Willoughby sort of gets a chance to explain himself and said, yes, I just 
married this woman for her money, but I don't love her anymore now. Then I thought, oh, now she's going to go back and... Uh, going, and she's basically going to make the, oh, boys will be boys argument. But no, actually, Eleanor then says, yeah, he's still a fuckboy, really. Um, he just complains now because he's unhappy in one way. Um, he would have complained if he had been unhappy another way. He's just selfish. I was really surprised by how Eleanor stood up for her sister. Yeah. Both in a literal way, but also in a kind of sisters doing it together way. And no. also not in a in a entirely antagonistic way. I found it interesting that they they do have a certain understanding for Willoughby and they're almost kind of glad that the whole thing is cleared up. But yeah, as you said, they still see him as the characterless asshole that he is. <laughs> and that's really good because you know, I know Willoughby's there are these kinds of men and it's it's just they're bad. Don't be a Willoughby. Be a who should you be? Who's the man in Austin that we should aspire to be like? Well, in sense and sensibility, I really don't know. The, the they, male... They're all kind of shitty. They are. Brandon is kind of creepy, I'd say, because he's <laughs> double the age of Marianne and still falls in love with her and, and marries her in the end. And his concept of honor, not telling them what Willoughby is all about because he doesn't want to... I don't know, get into his game or whatever his reason is. That is also kind of shitty in a certain sense. He doesn't want to interfere with Marianne's love and so on. But he could have told them from the very beginning, Willoughby is a cat. And that would have made things much easier. He could have just, he wouldn't even have had to tell them, oh yeah, he impregnated my adoptive daughter. He could have just told them, yeah, he impregnated some random girl I heard about and then left her. That's also interesting, actually. I recently heard a BBC radio program where someone said there are no duels in Austin, mm -hmm. but there is one in Sense and Sensibility, an almost duel, where the colonel challenged Willoughby over the impregnation and desertion of his adopted daughter, but then it didn't come to pass. Mm. But there's, it's very close to actual violence breaking out. There's no violence in this. Nobody is killed. Nobody is maimed in any way, which is very nice. But there is still intense emotional pain. And when Eleanor hears from Lucy that Lucy is engaged to Edward, that breaks your heart. It does. And you feel her pain. Even though she's the sensible one, she's the one who's always rational, she's overcome with feeling because it's just horrible. And that makes it, I think, more intense. Because how often it is kind of brought across that she's the sensible one, that if, when that is turned around, when it becomes clear that she has suppressed her emotions and that kind of comes to bite her in the ass, so to say, that, yeah, that makes it more intense. And you can relate to, to Eleanor in, in that degree very much. And you mentioned that Eleanor is a great character. I would say Marianne is maybe a bit more the typical teenager, so to say. Yeah, she's a but, bit more of a stock character, but she grows beyond that. She becomes more interesting as and, the novel goes on. And I think that is also interesting, that even nowadays, and even from my male perspective, I've been Marianne in my life, and I've been probably even more so an Eleanor. So that <laughs> kind of connects you to these women from a very different time, from a very different social setting. And that's, again, what I meant when I said this is the, the kind of intimate core. That You're right, it's both. It is kind of portrayal of society, it's a portrayal of ideas, it's a portrayal of femininity, but it's still about two people trying to find happiness in life. And that's what we all are sort of doing, isn't it? Mm, this is getting 
too deep for my taste. Speaking of people we identify with in the novel, there was one point actually where two of the characters, in fact, Willoughby and the Colonel, sort of reminded me of the two of us when Austin writes, what could a silent man of five and thirty hope when opposed to a very lively one of five and twenty? Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? I also don't identify with Jonas, by the way. You're 35, right? Okay, let's come to the conclusion, maybe. Um, I think there's no question. Definitely. I'm, uh, I'm glad that the podcast has done its job, basically. It's pushed me to read something I hadn't read before, and I realized how great it is. I want to read more Austen now, definitely, and you should too. She's brilliant. It's boring when we agree on things, and we're probably going to lose some of the listeners who came in with um, our perverted outing, so to say. But yeah, I really, really like Austen. Her style is sometimes a bit too simple for my taste. We've established that I'm more into the kind of grand experiments on a stylistic level. But considering the complexity of her characters and of her portrayal of that time and how much that still resonates nowadays, even apart from all the romantic Mr. Darcy hype, definitely read Austen. And if you're one of those gore hounds who has found the podcast over the Marquis de Sade, you can always go for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And Sense and Sensibility in Sea Monsters. Yeah, though Pride and Prejudice and Zombies has just been adapted into a film, so the most tiresome trend of the book market from five years ago can now become the most tiresome trend of the film market. Yay! So that's your recommendation, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> but yeah, let's actually come to recommendations. This time, I'm... Going for the safe and boring option. I mentioned already the film version of Sense and Sensibility from 1995, but I cannot recommend it enough. It is a really, really good adaptation. It really brings across the points we mentioned, especially the relationship between the female characters, the sense of female family, and the actors are just amazing. It has Emma Thompson, it has Kate Winslet, it has Alan Rickman, it has Hugh Grant. So it is an amazing film. It looks amazing, but what's even more important, it really brings across this emotional core that connects us to these characters in a Regency setting. So watch the film version, Sense and Sensibility by Ang Lee. Also, uh, go on YouTube afterwards and watch the clip from the QI film episode where Emma Thompson tells the story of how she lost the script on her old Mac computer, and the guy from the Mac store said he couldn't find it anymore on there, and she put on a bathrobe and went to Stephen Fry's house in a cab and put the computer there and said, Steve, please find my script, and he managed it, and then she wow. won an Oscar for it. That is amazing. Also, I think she met her husband there, so... yeah. Since I haven't recommended a film for two episodes now, I have to change that, of course. Um, but my recommendation is, basically, when you've just finished reading Sense and Sensibility and you've read The Happy Ending, if you want a bit more of a downer, if you want to get a bit depressed, I would recommend you watch Bright Star, a film from 2009 by Jane Campion, which is very much about a similar kind of setting. It's also about middle-class people moving into a house in the country. They also are struggling with financial difficulties. 
And one of the characters there is John Keats. It's based on his life, especially how he fell in love with a woman called Fanny Braun, played by Abby Cornish, Keats being played by Ben Whishaw. It's incredibly heartbreaking how these two people are kept apart, not just by society, but also by their inability to really make their way in this world that they're living in. Watch Bright Star because it will tear you apart in the most beautiful way imaginable. So it's interesting that a book from the early 19th century makes us recommend two films that are relatively recent. So again, maybe the connection that you can still kind of find. But if you have a different recommendation, if there are any books that you find much more interesting as a connecting piece to Sense and Sensibility, write us an email, for example. You can find our email address under outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes, where you can download... Download? Download? download. download our episodes. You can also find us on iTunes, where you can download our episodes and rate them. And please write reviews if you particularly like an episode or our podcast, even if you don't like it. But why should that happen? Also, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter at Outside of a Hound, uh, on Tumblr at Outside of a Dogcast. Uh, we're also available now on Stitcher. I don't know if any of you use Stitcher, but it seems to be an up-and-coming thing, so we're on that as well now. And we do have our homepage, obviously, outsideofadogcast.com. For our next episode, we have something rather special, since it comes out on October 31st. Scary! So we're reading a very scary play. Christian, what is it? Well, I can't say the name. It's, it's, it's the Scottish play. Ah, you mean Macbeth? Ah, no! Off potato, off the road, mouth to make amends! Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com Get you, Marion Dashwood. Marion Dashwood, I will count to three. There will not be a four. (laughs) (sighs) Because they're always reading to each other, of course. Marion Dashwood, read the chapter on werewolves. (laughs) Werewolves.